Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. If you're using uh, one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 1002. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. This is the very Word of God. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, as we come before you this morning, as we devote ourselves to your word, delivered once for all to the saints, we ask that your same Spirit who inspired the apostles and the prophets to write these words would now be at work among us, opening our minds and our hearts to receive them and strengthening us to bring forth their fruit in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was watching television this last week. I, I came across a show with a little girl. A little girl whose life was obviously in danger, but who was willing to risk everything, even her life, to get back an old, tattered copy of A Wrinkle in Time. Needless to say, the agents who had been tasked with keeping her safe did not think it was a fitting risk. They could not comprehend why anyone would be willing to risk their lives for an old, raggedy book. But the girl, she was convinced that it was more than worth it. She thought it was fitting to risk everything she had, even her life, in order to get back that book. Because that book was the last connection she had to her mom who had died some time earlier. Not sure how the story plays out, but but the scenario is familiar. I wonder if you've ever been in a similar situation. I wonder if you have ever been willing to pay a seemingly exorbitant price 
to obtain something you found precious that other people just couldn't understand. In a sense, that's the question that's raised at the end of the previous paragraph. In verses 5 through 9, we were told that Jesus is the ruler of the world to come. And therefore, he alone is able to give his subject an inheritance in the coming kingdom. However, we also saw that he was crowned with glory and honor, that he was seated at the right hand of the majesty on high only because of the suffering of death. He had to endure the suffering of death in order to obtain the throne, in order to become the savior of his people. We're so familiar with the story, it no longer shocks us. We've heard about Jesus dying for our sins for, for so long, it is, it is familiar. But remember, this would have been entirely shocking to, to anyone in the first century. Paul tells us that the gospel of a crucified Messiah was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. And it ought to leave us asking, why would God do such a thing? Why would God be willing to pay such a price? Why would he be willing to give his son for people, for, for people like us? It doesn't seem fitting. That's the question that the author is addressing in these verses before us this morning. His, his thesis is simple. It's set forth there in verse 10. He says it was actually fitting. It was fitting for God, for, for he by whom and, and through whom all things exist. It was fitting for him in bringing many sons to glory to make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was fitting for him to do this. And it was fitting for, for several reasons. He, he gives us at least three in verses 11 and following. It was fitting first because they were his sons. Because these were his children chosen before the foundation of the world. It was fitting because their condition demanded it. They were in bondage. They were slaves needing to be set free. And it was fitting because they were weak. Unable to walk the road that had been set before them without the help of a Savior. And so it was fitting for all of these reasons, the author tells us. What I want us to do this morning is, is look at that thesis. Look at that, that statement that he gives us to, to understand what it is that he is telling us God has done for us. And then to explore the reasons why. So let's begin with the thesis itself. He tells us it was... Fitting. It was fitting for God. And notice how he describes God here. He says it was fitting for God by whom and for whom all things exist. He's reminding us that God is the creator. And not only is he the creator, but he is the creator who has made all things for himself. All of creation was, was made for the glory of God. All of creation was, was made to, to magnify the glory of his name. And this is especially true of, of us who were created in his image. We were made to glorify him. 
We were made to, to reflect his glory as we exercised his rule over the creation that he had spoken into existence. And so it was fitting for the maker of heaven and earth, the, the God who had made all things for his glory, to do what? It was, it was fitting for the, the creator and sustainer of the world, he says, to make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now it's clear that this is a, a reference to, to Jesus. This is a reference to the one whom, whom God had, had sent out of love for the world, to, to redeem those whom he had chosen before the foundation of the, the world, the, the founder of our salvation. Sometimes it's, it's translated as pioneer or, or champion. It's a, it's a hard word to, to capture in, in English. It's a, it's a word that means he's the one who has accomplished our salvation, and he is the one who has actually applied it to his people. He is the, the founder, the, the champion of our salvation. But what does it mean, or what could it even possibly mean? To say that Jesus has somehow been made perfect. He is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the, the Trinity. He is the very embodiment of perfection. What does it mean to say that he was made perfect? How could that which is perfect become perfect? Well, we have to understand that he became perfect as our Savior. He became perfect as the one who would redeem us from the curse of the law. You see, it was necessary. It was necessary for, for Christ to do what? To go through suffering. He was made perfect how? Through suffering. It was, it was necessary for him to go through the suffering of the cross in order to save us. Again, that's sometimes hard for us to comprehend. We, we struggle over the idea that God would have to do something in order to be the Savior. Why can't he just save by, by divine fiat? Why can't he just decide to do it? And of course, there is no power in the universe that stands against him. There is no power that he, that he has to overcome. But rather, it is his own character that binds him. God is not a God who can simply overlook sin. He, he is not a God who can, who can simply ignore our rebellion. He would not be a good God if he simply turned a blind eye. And therefore his own character demanded that restitution be made. His, his own character demanded that, that Christ take our place. That he becomes sin for us. That, that he drink to the dregs the cup of God's wrath. That we might instead come to his table and drink the cup of his blessing. We, we see this so clearly in the night that, that Jesus was betrayed as he was in the garden. Do you remember his prayer? His, his anguished prayer. His prayer three times repeated. Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Jesus knew the anguish he was about to endure. He, he knew what it was going to be to be forsaken upon the cross. It was, it was not the physical pain of the cross that frightened him. 
We sometimes make a big deal about the, the physical suffering. The physical suffering was extreme. But there have been other martyrs throughout the history of the church who have, who have faced even greater physical suffering with, with, with what seems to be far greater bravery. It was not the physical suffering of the cross that, that, that caused Jesus to weep, that caused him to, to sweat blood. But what frightened him, what, what caused him to cry out in anguish was the thought of being forsaken by his father, was the, was the thought of, of becoming sin in his eyes, was the thought of, of coming under his curse. And if this is what Jesus was, was willing to go through, this is what he was willing to suffer. But he pleaded with his father, Father, I'm willing, but if there's any way, take this cup from me. If there's any other way to accomplish your purposes, if there's any other way to bring sons to glory, let's do it that way. And the fact that the father did not answer, the fact that the father did not remove the cup tells us that this was the only way. If God was going to execute his plan, if he was going to save those whom he had chosen before the foundations of the earth, then this was the way. Christ was going to be forsaken upon the cross. He was going to die a sinner's death. He was going to drink the cup of God's wrath. And only through drinking that cup, only through that suffering, did he become the Savior? Only through that suffering was he made perfect. Was he made the complete Savior, the one who could deliver us from the sentence of death. And we're told that it was fitting for God to do this. It was, it was fitting for, for God to send his son to the cross because he was bringing many sons to glory. Some debate about what this glory is that is being referred to. Is it, is it the, the glory of the world to come? Is it the, the glory of God's presence? Is it the glory of our own renewed natures? Yes, to all of the above. Because they are inseparably bound together. Glory is always of God. Glory is ours only in as much as we reflect the glory of God. And so when we are glorified, it's because we are restored to the image of He who made us. And the, the world to come is glorious because it is the kingdom where His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And so it is the glory of God that, show, that shines throughout the kingdom and that shines through us for all to see that they might give praise to God. So he is bringing us back into that glory, that, that glory of which we fell short. That glory that we lost in our rebellion against him. He's bringing us back. He's bringing us back to glory. And who is he bringing? He's bringing sons. He's bringing sons. He's bringing his children back to glory. Think about that for a moment. Just think about that. We are children of God, in a sense, because of our creation. If you look at the language of, of image and, and likeness as it's used in the early chapters of Genesis, you, you see that fathers have children in their likeness. 
God created us to be his, his children. But of course, we rebelled. Of course, we, we cut ourselves off from our Father. We, we were separated from Him. We came under His curse instead of His, His blessing. But now God has chosen for Himself those whom He will redeem. He has chosen us to, to be His sons and daughters even before the foundations of the world. He, he has chosen us to be His children. And so, in order to redeem His children, in order to bring His children, those whom He has sovereignly chosen for Himself, in order to bring those children to glory, He sent His Son. His only Son. His begotten Son. To lay down His life as the ransom for many. And this was fitting. It was fitting for God to do this. It was proper for God to do this. Why? Why, why is it possibly fitting for, for the maker of heaven and earth to, to, to send his son to redeem rebels like us? Well, we've already touched on the first reason. The first reason that he, he gives us is that we are His children. He, he sent His Son to save His sons. To save those whom He had chosen to, to adopt as His own. We, we see this in verse 11. Notice what He says. He says, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Now the translations here get a little wonky. There's, there's several choices. Uh, even the ESV has changed over the years. Sometimes it says all have one origin. Sometimes it says all have one source. If you were translating it literally, it would simply say are all of one. So those who are sanctified and he who sanctifies are all of one. So the question, of course, is, what is the one? What does the, to, what, to what does the one refer? And, and again, to answer that question, we have to keep reading. We have to notice what he says here. Notice what he says. He says that because they are all of one, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Because they are one, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call these sons who are, whom he's bringing to glory, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. The implication is that they are of the same family or that they, they are of the same father. The one here is the one, the father. The one is his family. We are all of the same father. We are all of the same family. So that as the author tells us in quoting Psalm 22, that, that he is not afraid to call us brothers or that he is bringing us, he is putting our trust in the Lord even as he and his children, it says. Those who are of the same family. And so it's clear that, that Jesus is saying that well, that the author is saying that, that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers because we are all of the same Father. His Father has become our Father. We have become members of His family. We are now His brothers. 
I want you to think for a moment about what that means. That God loves you as a child because he has chosen to love you as a child. We sometimes have it in our mind that, that Jesus came to, to sort of compel God to love us. But that's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures say that the Father loved us even in our rebellion. He set his affection on us. He loved us when we were weak. He loved us when we were sinners. He, he loved us when we were even enemies. And he demonstrated that love for us by giving his son, Jesus, to die in our place upon the cross. God chose to love you because you were made to be his child. I think it's common in our circles at least, to sometimes speak as if, as if we have no value. There's nothing good in us. We are worthless. And we think this is somehow sanctified language. But it's not the way God speaks. It is true that our works are of no value, that they are as filthy rags when offered to God in, in payment for position or for for privilege. But God does not regard us as junk. God does not regard us as worthless. God does not see us as worms. He sees us as those who were created in his image to be his beloved children. And he chose to love us even in our rebellion and at great cost, he found it still to be fitting to bring us home. We need to know this. We need to know that we have value. I know that there's all kinds of crazy ideas about self-esteem in the world today, and we want to distance ourselves from that as far as we, we possibly can. But let's, but let's not miss the truth that we have value. Because God made us in his image. And God chose to save us because he had made us in his image. And he would not allow the devil to have his way. He would not allow the devil to, to drag us into death. But rather he set his name upon us. And he chose to, to redeem us. He chose to, to bring us home. He chose to bring us to glory because he loved us. Because he valued us as his children. Because he valued us as his image bearers. So because of his love for us, he thought it was fitting. It was fitting to make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering that he might bring us home to glory. But as I said already, bringing us home to glory had a cost. God loved us as children. Because he loved us as children, he was willing to pay that cost. But what was that cost? We, we see the, the second part here. What, what did we need? We, we needed to be set free from our lifelong slavery. 
Notice what he writes. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of these same things. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So notice that our, our condition, the condition that we were in when, when God chose to love us, the, the condition that we were in was... Lifelong slavery through the fear of death. Okay, what does that fear of death mean? I, I think, of course, it, it has the, the sense of, of, of just the, the subjective existential fear that we all fear when we, that we all feel when we, we face death. There is something scary about death. But why is there something scary about it? It's not only because it is unknown, it's because we have a sense in our hearts, because we are image bearers of God, that the things that we have done are deserving of judgment. Paul tells us this in his letter to the Romans. He says, we know. Sometimes our heart commends us and tells us, yes, that was the right thing to do. But very often, our heart condemns us. It says, the things that you have done are worthy of death. Not just that this physical body would end, but that we would face the spiritual judgment, the, the spiritual separation from the blessings of God. That second death that the scriptures speak of. We, we have this fear, but it's, but it's not just that we have an existential fear of death. There's also an objective fear of death. There is that simple reality that this is our unavoidable destiny. We simply cannot escape it. That death is our future. We are dead men walking. Our lives are nothing but the green mile. From the moment we were born, we've been moving towards death. From the moment we were conceived, we have been under a sentence of death. We have a fear of death coming because it is coming. And it is coming with judgment. This helps us, I think, to understand how it is that the, that the devil wielded the power of death. Again, that's a, that's a troubling phrase in some sense. It almost sounds dualistic. It almost sounds as if there's, there's God with the power of life and there's the devil with the power of death and they are at odds with one another. But that, that's not the way the scriptures normally speak. We are not dualists. We do not believe that there are two equal powers in the universe. And so, in what sense did the devil wield the power of death? Well, obviously, he didn't wield that power ultimately. He is not God's equal. It is God who determined that death was the wages of sin. It is, it is God who said, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But understand this, that Satan tried to use God's justice against him. Satan tried to use God's own character to, to foil God's purposes. Satan lured mankind into sin and then laughed in God's face saying, now you cannot bless them. Because if you bless them now, you will not be true to your own Character. He wielded the power of death, which was rightfully God's, but he attempted to take up that weapon against God himself. 
It's the same point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says that the power of sin is the law. Sin is powerful to condemn, not because sin has any power in itself, but because God has said that the wages of sin is death. So Satan takes us prisoner. He holds us captive with God's own sword, with the power of death, attempting to thwart God's purposes with his own righteousness. But God won't have it. God simply will not have it. His wisdom is greater than the wisdom of Satan. And so, he uses his own righteousness to defeat death by death. This is the wisdom of the cross. This is the the unthinkable wisdom of the gospel. That God disarms Satan. That he removes the sword from his hands. By inflicting the death that we deserve upon the one who became like us in flesh and blood, that he might stand in our place before the throne and drink the cup of God's wrath for us. Do you understand? Jesus' death set you free from death. Jesus' death was your death. And your death, having been poured out in full, is no longer reserved for you. That's what this table is all about. That's what we are about to celebrate. His body was broken. His blood was poured out. That we who deserved that punishment might instead receive blessing. He drank the cup of God's wrath that we might know only the cup of His blessing. He becomes cursed, that we might have eternal life. This is the heartbeat of the Gospel. It's the the same thing we see again in, in verse 17 when he speaks of this sacrifice of propitiation. A sacrifice of of propitiation is exactly that. It's a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath. God's holy, righteous wrath against sin. That that wrath that cannot be denied. That that wrath that, that is actually essential to His goodness. That wrath is poured out in full upon another. That we might never know it. That we might never experience the forsakenness that Christ knew upon the cross. But instead, we might be known and fully known by our beloved Father. And so it was fitting. It was fitting for for God to put forth His Son as the propitiatory sacrifice for us. Because we were His beloved children. And only through the death of a substitute could we be delivered from our lifelong slavery to the fear of death. This is what Christ has done for us. I don't have time to get into the third point this morning, but I, just, I want us to simply, to simply soak in this Gospel. 
I want us to let this gospel rule in our hearts this morning. I want, it, I want this peace to, to, to rule in our lives. I want us to know with, with assurance that God has loved us as children even before the foundations of the world. And His love for us was so great that He did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all. That we who deserve judgment and condemnation might instead know His blessing. This is the extent of the Father's love. This is the height and the depth and the width of His love for us. A love which has been demonstrated beyond reasonable doubt in the gift of His Son. And so this morning, as you look at your own life, as you look at your own circumstances, as you, as you wonder, does God love me? I challenge you. Do not look to your circumstances. Do not look to the trials that are sure to come. But look to the cross. Look to the gift of the Son. And know that if He did that, how will He not work all things together for my good? Yes, trials may come. Yes, hardships will be grievous. We will groan. But His purposes cannot be thwarted because the Son was made perfect through suffering. Because He was made perfect through suffering, our salvation is now complete. And there is no trial, there is no tribulation, there is no sword, there is no famine, there is no persecution in all creation that can undo the purposes of His love for us. As His sons, He will bring us to glory. And because that is sure, because that is certain, because that is sealed with the blood of the Savior, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Man, yeah, let's believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness to us. And we pray that you would allow this gospel to renew our minds, that our lives might be transformed to the praise of your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.